Lord, we're in need of you. As we just sang, apart from you, there's death. We need your atonement. We need your forgiveness. We need what only you can give us at the cross. And so even this morning, Lord, we need that. We need that for, for life, for growth, for hope, for transformation. And so would you help us to see the cross on the pages of Scripture this morning in Jesus' name? Amen. All right, let's look at a quick example from the past week in the news that will demonstrate, okay, our need for something deeper, our need for something more reliant, something more rock solid and irreducible than what we're we're currently clinging to. And I'm not trying to be glib about anything, and I'm not, I don't want to be provocative, but I really do think that what, to to a small degree, what we saw is how easy our hearts can be deterred from hope and distracted from what Christ holds out to us as believers. So um, at about 7.30 a.m., 8 a.m., Thursday, somewhere around in there, when it's my habit typically to continue to crystallize my manuscript and more like I put more writing efforts in on Thursday morning in particular, so that's why, one of the reasons why I'm talking about it now. But okay, Thursday morning, 7.30, 8 a.m., some of us experienced a hiccup in our phone services. That is to say, when we left our homes, well, this was my experience. But, you know, when you leave your home, you have where you have typically, not everybody, but most of us have, like, constant contact at home because we have a constant Wi-Fi. Unless that goes out, we have Wi-Fi. When we left home where we had constant contact, and then when we arrived to, to work and we have constant contact, in that, like, 10 to 15 minutes in between... Many of us didn't have any kind of cell phone service because of a nationwide outage and all this confusion about what was causing it. Now, I get the concern that this can cause for people, for sure the inconvenience, and there are even other issues too, but, you know, at the same time, it's like this phenomena of leaving a home where you have connectivity then, then like arriving at work where you have connectivity, but that 15 minutes of like the drive, 10 to 15 minutes in between where you don't. And it's also called the 1990s, right? Um, or 80s and before that. I, I, I didn't even own a cell phone until uh, I was married, you guys. So, um, and, and look, I'm speaking mostly to the, to the younger people here, but, but I, still, I still did stuff. I drove places, even longer distances, by myself with no way to contact anyone except for maybe the landline of a local business if we got stranded or whatever, you know. I think about Back to the Future and that scene when Marty lands in the 1950s and he goes in, finds a phone booth, and it has the phone book. Uh, A lot of people would have no idea what to do if that happened. You have Wi-Fi? What are you talking about, right? So um, when our cell services nationwide go down for, for 30 minutes, we feel very vulnerable. Like these days, these days if we forget our phone, if we leave it behind, we feel very exposed, very vulnerable, you know. And so everyone kind of panicked, and it didn't surprise me when I got to Caribou and I was trying to figure out what happened. I, I had Wi-Fi there, so I t- you know, typed in phone service. And, and so um, in Google, and one of the search results was, like top news story. Here's an actual headline. AT&T down with iPhones stuck in SOS mode as people say the world is ending. Um, 
So in the article, I mean, people talked like this. They were worried, this terrorist attack, solar flares, everything coming to a grinding halt. And mind you, this was for most people like an hour, (laughs) okay? Uh, And again, I'm not not trying to minimize the reality that we live in a tech world and some of us work for tech companies. We're in need of of this kind of connectivity for our living, okay? Um, But also, I I just want to point out, the kind of instant connectivity that these devices offer is still very, very new. And we forget that. Like, even for someone like me, who grew up in the 80s and 90s without that, and not into my 20s, not until my 20s that I have a very limited version of this thing, you know? It's easy for me to even pretend like this has always existed. You know, like, something that we've just always had. We forget actually how new all of this is, the internet too, and we're really okay. We were, we were really okay before all these things hit the market. It's not like everyone was getting lost and dying in the wilderness without being able to reach loved ones until someone invented the smartphone and suddenly we realized how to get home and contact people. Um, we, we, we treat it sometimes like it was the invention of fire. But this, this reminded me this past week, rant aside, um, how much we're in need of a deeper kind of peace, you know, a deeper kind of joy, and specifically the joy held out to us in Jesus, because um, here in John 16, because, and hang with me here, uh, if we remember from the past two weeks, we, we really see how easily the problems that Jesus talked about, that our text exposed for us the last two weeks, how it doesn't take a whole lot to trigger them in the human heart, you know, like if we remember the last two weeks, we've had two problems brought to our attention. One is the reality as we looked at two weeks ago that to be someone who has thrown themselves on the mercies of God, okay, to be someone who has thrown themselves on the cross by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, someone who genuinely loves and believes in Jesus as he reveals himself, not a Jesus of our own making, okay, but as he reveals himself, to us, to be someone who is fully accepted by the Father through the work of the Son because the Spirit of God has made it known to us like we talked about last week. All of that necessarily means you're also someone who's hated by the world in exactly the ways that Jesus describes here in John 16. The wrath of the world in persecution It's a very real thing. Like, everyone faces wrath. Which one are you going to face becomes the question for John. Are you going to face the wrath of the world because you you have the acceptance of God or the wrath of God against sin because you have the acceptance of surrounding culture, you're living according to the world? That's, That's the question. So that's one problem Christians face in this life. The other one we saw last week, which is that a misplaced hope on the part of Christians can often give way to a materialistic hardship or a worldly sorrow, a sadness that we have to walk through, the kind of scrutiny the world offers Christians, a sadness that Jesus isn't actually coming through for me the way that I think he should be, right? He's not doing for me according to my will. And that leads to this hardship, this tribulation, you know? And, and um, what we saw in the news this last week reminded us just how easily that hope can be misplaced, I think. You know, like, it doesn't take a lot. Just how much it can lead to a materialistic hardship, 
Just how little tribulation we're willing to face or we're able, actually it's able to face, before we declare the world to be ending. So if you're reading, you know, Martin Lloyd-Jones, section by section of this book as we read through it together here January, February, and into March, let not your heart be troubled. We're reading this together. Um, The reading for last week, Lloyd-Jones writes this, and it comes right in line with the kinds of questions that I'm talking about here. He says, I think a much more certain and subtle way of discovering whether people really are Christians is to ask them leading questions such as these. So he's talking about like as we're having conversations with non-believing friends about the gospel or even friends who come to church and they, they have kind of like a religious jargon but, but their faith is often caught off guard by some of these outside realities. He says, here's some questions to ask. What's your view of what's happening in the world at the present time? How do you react to it? Are you surprised at it? Does the present state of the world and the prospects that seem to lie ahead of us fit into your philosophy of this life? Or do they not? Do you see the materialistic hardship types of questions, the worldly sorrow-like kinds of questions? Are you driven into the depths of despair by what's happening in the world today? Is this something that's come crashing into all your calculations and ideas? Or is it something that fits naturally and inevitably into your view of life and the whole course of history? What is your forecast of the future? What are you expecting of life? What are you anticipating in the realm of history? You know, Lloyd-Jones is talking about how apart from Christ and what he's done, like, as humans, we don't have capacity to face trials and tribulations. We don't have capacity to face hardships or difficulty. We don't have much capacity to, to deal with or carry our sorrows. Why? Well, because if we're trying to do this under our own strength and effort, which is, what, which is really the only hope the world holds out. Like, there's a reason why young men in particular are really captivated during this time by, like, there's a movement back towards stoicism among young uh, The writings of Marcus Aurelius, because in them, young men are finding this voice that says, like, hey, you can... You can still be someone who's strong for your family in the midst of pain and turmoil, who isn't affected or swayed so much by emotions, who can be depended on. And this is why voices like Jordan Peterson are, he, he is clung on to by young men in particular because there's this desire, there's this voice of like, hey, clean your room, grow up. Uh, you, can, you can really be someone who makes a substantive contribution in your society. But the problem with all these voices, you know, from Aurelius to Peterson, is the only means that are held out to do it is your own strength. And if we're trying to do this under our own strength and effort, by definition, we're attempting to deal with all this through a temporal lens in which there is no hope. There's no real hope given outside of like the the struggle itself. And yet Jesus comes and he says, do you want the strength? So Jesus has the question, Do you want the strength to carry your sorrows in this world and to even have a real, not not fake or manufactured, but real joy in the midst of suffering? And there's a lot of times in which like our churches can hold out a manufactured kind of joy where we, we come on a Sunday morning and it's like, hey, church, aren't you excited to worship Jesus with us? You know, there's kind of like this pressure to have this manufactured type of joy as we enter into worship together rather than a deep and real joy even in the midst of very real struggles. Because there's a lot of times where it's like, I mean, I'm not ready, but by the grace of God, you know. 
So do you want a real joy, not fake manufactured in the midst of those struggles? Do you want a kind of peace that can't be just thrown headlong into instant turmoil during relatively minor hardship? To, to, the, to the big hardship, too, by the way. And I think most people would hear those questions and say, yes. You know, I think most people in our culture, cultural moment would shout, yes. Like, I want, I want that kind of peace. I want that kind of joy. What's the means of those things becoming a reality for us? Only in what Christians call the gospel. Okay, and so it's here this morning that as we look at John chapter 16, we are going to find together two ways the gospel transforms. Okay, two ways the gospel transforms. And it's here actually that we see evidence of the reality that the gospel is not only what saves us, but it also shapes us to live and look differently in this world. You know, this idea that we talk about a gospel life church all the time, about a gospel-centeredness that, that like, the gospel is central, but then it goes out in every direction, rooting all of life in the good news of Jesus, that that's what discipleship looks like, that that's our definition of disciple-making. This is not just, here's, here's evidence for us in the scriptures this morning that this is not just some ivory tower concept for seminary academics to ponder about that doesn't actually work itself out in the real world. Like, this is very real. It's very tangible. These are tangible examples of gospel transformation in the text. And we see proof of that reality here. So, you want to know how the good news that the Scriptures hold out to you actually bring not just information, but transformation, like real transformation, not manufactured, not fake, okay? Let's look, for, look first at the reality that the gospel brings us from sorrow to joy. Two big sections. Sorrow to joy, this one uh, takes us from verses 16 to 24, but let's just begin in verse 16. In both of these sections, by the way, the first thing Jesus is going to bring us to is what is this transformation ultimately rooted in, right? Where do we, where do we find it? Okay, centrally. So, verse 16, a little while, and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and you will see me. Here Jesus puts the events of the gospel front and center to everything he's about to tell his disciples. Now, where do we see that? Well, we, we have to ask this question. The question here at the front end is, which leaving and returning is Jesus talking about. So he says, he says he's going to depart from them, you know, a little while I won't be with you, and then he says, and then a little while and I'll be with you again, right? So he's saying I'm going to, I'm going to depart, I'm going to come back. Which leaving and which returning is he talking about in verse 16? So when he says a little while and you will see me no longer, is he talking about his arrest and his death and his burial? So the little while being the cross and the tomb? Or is he talking about his ascension to the Father like he was talking about in the previous section where the Spirit's going to come upon them? Um, so which leaving is he describing? And then when he says, and again a little while and you will see me, is he talking about the resurrection out of the tomb and the resurrection appearances to the disciples? The coming of the Spirit? You know, because he's going to return to them as the, like he said in the last section. Is he talking about the end, the glorious return? like we looked at at the end of Revelation. 
And I suspect the answer is yes. But I want to clarify, because it's not so simple, right? For sure we can say, here's what I think. I think we can definitely say that he's primarily talking about his coming death in the, the hours to come. The, the death and subsequent resurrection appearances to his disciples, and we can actually prove it in the text. Okay, so I think he's, he is primarily talking about that. And some of the commentators are pretty adamant that this is really the only thing we can prove that Jesus is talking about for some good reason using these words. But, you know, at the same time, given the surrounding context in which Jesus surely is also talking about some of these other realities, the language of in that day, in that day, in that day, throughout the scriptures being like a, a reality of the end, I think, and, and also given the reality of John's use of like double meanings, Often John will have like a primary meaning to a word that he's using, but he also has a subtle secondary meaning. I think it's very possible that in a primary sense, talking about his death and resurrection, but in a secondary sense, it is talking about his ascension and eventual physical glorious return in the end. And I go into this just to say, I think the events of the gospel are what's in view here. And uh, I also think the future hope held out in the gospel is what's in view here. It seems the disciples have a similar question, though. And for them, it's much different than it is for us because they're on the back end of the cross. They, they simply have no category in their first century Jewish worldview to deal with and comprehend what Jesus is saying to them. So, verse 17. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while? and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? And we do not know what he's talking about. So we need to remember again, you know, it's different for the disciples than for us when we were reading John. Because the first century Jewish worldview simply had no category for a dying, much less rising Messiah, not because the scriptures didn't point forward to it, but you know, you have to understand there was a, a general resurrection in the end and outside of that, there was no anticipation of a resurrection in this life in a first century Jewish worldview. This is not how they understood the scriptures to be pointing forward. And, and also, you know, they had a misplaced hope, a kind of liberation theology in the first century in which they believed God's primary work in sending his Messiah would be to liberate them from injustices imposed upon them by the Romans. They didn't see their central need like we talked about last week. And so they didn't see God's solution to their primary need. Verse 19, Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? So you might ask me, where do we see the cross as like the centerpiece of what Jesus is talking about here? Well, listen, this phrase, a little while, that I think is centrally describing what's about to transpire, okay? Uh, it's now repeated by John, let's count together, twice in verse 16, quoting Jesus, twice in verse 17, quoting what the disciples said to one another, once in verse 18 as being the primary issue they're wrestling with, and now twice in verse 19 as Jesus zeroes in on their question. And all this is very intentional on the part of John, you know, because he's showing what's central to the narrative moving forward. He's recording that Jesus actually said these things, but he wants to record it 
as it was being expressed because he wants us to see what's at the center of discussion. It's the cross. It's the hour that's to come. Jesus wants to show them how this hour actually changes everything for us. As we'll see in a little bit, it's actually seen in many ways as like the the end of history. Okay? Verse 20, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Here we see the evidence that Jesus is actually, I think he must be, talking about his coming death and subsequent resurrection in a primary way. The events of the gospel, that that's what's primarily in view here when he says, a little while you will see me no longer, again a little while and you will see me, because he says that in the midst of that departure, during that little while when the disciples wouldn't see him, they'll weep and lament. And we know from the last set of verses that can't, in a primary sense, be talking about Jesus' ascension until his glorious resurrection because weeping and lamenting is not held out to us as the normative experience of Christians in this life. Why? Because Jesus said he'd send his spirit. It's better for the disciples if he leaves and the spirit comes. It reassures their hearts of the future hope that they have. The spirit of God reassures their hearts. He points us to Christ. He testifies to the truth. And so, This is a clear reference to the reality that in the hours to come, Jesus will die. His disciples will weep and lament. There'll be confusion, there'll be trial, there'll be tribulation. The world will rejoice, but then all of that is going to get turned on its head. And we see why in this non-narrative parable that Jesus tells, starting in verse 21, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby... She no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. You know, sometimes, sometimes the illustrations that Jesus uses, like in John 15 about the vine and the branches, they're illustrations that would be very easy to understand if you lived in first century Palestine, where so many people made their living uh, doing exactly that, farming grapes, okay? So a lot of times it's like, okay, we've got to unpack the illustration in order to understand it. But actually not here, not this time. This continues to be the experience of childbearing today around the world, that there's often a hesitation and a worry in the hour to come by the parents for many reasons, specifically by the woman giving birth because of the anguish of childbearing. But when the baby is delivered and then immediately given to the mother, through tears there's now laughter and joy. Right? Jesus says this is what the hours to come for the disciples would be like. This is actually how the historical record of the disciples and the resurrection appearances, the, minist- the, the, the resurrection appearances of Jesus to the disciples and then the ministry of the apostles. It's how they read. Historians even today marvel at the fact that the disciples were hiding, huddled together in fear, but then there's such a change that each one just goes out and boldly proclaims in joy, you know? Their lives are just turned upside down, and it just becomes very obvious that that happened. The anguish of this hour will be forgotten. And we'll talk more about that when we get to chapters 20 and 21. Because in chapter 20, verse 20, 
John records it this way, the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. You know, you do see a, a weeping and lamenting that he's going to show us in the hours to come, but then you get to 2020. I'm not trying to, you know, spoil Easter Sunday. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. You know, like, and when Jesus reinstates Peter and he calls him to suffer in 21, we'll see the same kinds of themes. Why? Because while they would have sorrow for a time, when they came to see the center of his coming, you know, when they came to see the very cross and resurrection that Jesus came to accomplish, their hearts would rejoice. And while people could take their lives from them, nobody could take their joy from them, you know. And the same is true for us. Living in the same reality of the saving knowledge of Christ today. That there's real suffering, and it doesn't minimize the fact that Christians suffer. But in light of that suffering, we don't lose our joy. There's a deep joy that abides because it's found in Christ. So when Jesus, in verses 23 to 24, is talking about on that day, there's a sense in which he's talking about the cross. So that day throughout Scripture, it's like very commonly pointing forward to the end of history, the end of history, the end of history. Very often, it's actually talking about the second coming. But I think here, John is using it in a way to show us He's talking in a sense about the cross and resurrection as the end of history. Like, why? Because that's the day that everything changes forever. When our hearts are finally shaped more and more to look like his, his desires become our desires. Our joy is made complete and cannot be removed from us no matter what the world does, no matter what circumstances we find ourselves in. It reminds me of um, this section from Nick Ripkin's The Insanity of God. Bear with me if you've heard me read this before. Uh, but he's interviewing members of a house church in China, asking them about the risks that they take, and they responded to him with this scenario that, again, I've read before many years ago, but I feel compelled to read it again now because it kind of demonstrates the way in which this new kind of joy we have in, in, rooted in Christ rather than our circumstances actually changes the way in which we live. So, again, interviewing the, the house church in China, asking them about the risks they take, and they respond with this scenario. The security police regularly harass a believer who owns the property where a house church meets. The police say, you've got to stop these meetings. If you do not stop these meetings, we will confiscate your house and we will throw you out into the street. Then the property owner will probably respond, do you want my house? Do you want my farm? Well, if you do, you need to talk to Jesus because I gave this property to him. The security police will not know what to make of this answer, so they will say, well, we don't have any way to get to Jesus, but we can certainly get to you, and when we take your property, you and your family will have nowhere to live. And the house church believers will declare, then we will be free to trust God for our shelter as well as for our daily bread. If you keep this up, we will beat you, the persecutors tell them. Then we will be free to trust in Jesus for healing. The believers will respond. And then we will put you in prison, the police will threaten. By now the believer's response is almost predictable. Then we will be free to preach the good news of Jesus to the captives, to set them free. We will be free to plant churches in prison. Well, if you try to do that, we will kill you, the frustrated authorities will vow. And with utter consistency, the house church believers reply, then we will be free to go to heaven and be with Jesus forever. Like when, 
When the gospel is believed and understood and applied in the human heart, it replaces our sorrows. Like, it doesn't mean any of those things wouldn't be hard. It doesn't mean it wouldn't be real suffering. It doesn't mean there wouldn't be sorrows involved. But rather that the joy of Christ becomes something that no one can take from us, and therefore it leads to to also a kind of peace in the way that we interact in the world around us, even in the midst of chaos and persecution. So this is where we see, okay, believing the gospel first of all, transforms us from sorrow to joy. But when that happens, we also secondly experience chaos to peace, verses 25 to 33. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you. And you have loved me and believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. So very quickly, you know, linking the last section to this one, Jesus says, there's going to come a time when they have a fuller understanding. And it's, people have given a lot of explanations as to what Jesus means when he's talking about like, before I spoke to you in figures of speech, now not so figuratively, And some people say, well, what he means is that he's not going to use, like, parabolic language, parables, like, illustrations as much anymore. He's going to speak more matter-of-factly. But I don't think it's as, I don't think it's so simple as that. I think in part that's what he's saying. But it's, you know, because if we remember, like, in Mark's account, Jesus speaks in parables. But then what, what does he also do? He pulls his disciples aside and he tells them in straightforward language the meaning of the parable. But still they're surprised by the cross. Still, they're not anticipating a dying Messiah at the end of it, you know. So the point here isn't so much that he's, not, he's no, no longer going to speak to them in parables, but rather there will come a point in which they can straightforwardly see and understand the cross, right? There's gonna, and Jesus was talking about this last week. The Spirit of truth would come and testify. But there's going to come this hour in which Jesus is going to give up his life for them. You know, there's, there, he wants them to know. While there are difficult hours ahead, the hour that he comes to do that for them, the hour of their sorrow and his suffering, all this chaos that they're about to enter into, or seemingly to them chaos, it's also the hour through which they can come to realize the Father is no longer distant from them, that they actually have peace through Jesus with God. You know, a kind of peace with God that then allows us to be at peace in all circumstances. And what I mean by that is, you know, when Jesus tells them to ask in my name, so he says, ask in my name. But while he, he, he says that, he also wants to make it very clear to them that he doesn't mean, well, okay, you need to ask in my name because I, I've, got, I've got the connection with the Father, you don't. You know, he, he doesn't want it to be like somebody who says, yeah, you don't know this guy, I do, so you're going to be better off um, making your request through me because I've got the direct channel. Jesus wants to tell them, this is no longer how things are going to be. You know, it's not because you're still distanced from him or because you're so removed. No, because of what Jesus does at the cross, the disciples are accepted and loved by the Father, you know. The Father himself loves them. Why? Because they've loved and received Jesus, you know. They've believed in Jesus. They've thrown themselves on his mercy. So at the root of both the joy and the peace now that Jesus described is this hour in which he comes to reconcile us to the Father. This is good news. How do the disciples respond to that good news? Like, this is good news of grace, you know, and like the effect of grace. But how do the disciples respond to the, to the idea of grace? Starting in verses 29 to 33. 
His disciples said, Ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know. You know, now we, that's where you know we're getting into some trouble. You know, now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In the world you, have, you will have tribulation, but take heart, you know now. He didn't say that, you know. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. You did it. You figured it out. Good job. No, what, how, do, how do the disciples respond? They think the problem of their misunderstanding is resolved. There are continued like gasps of self-reliance here on the part of the disciples in which they tell Jesus, ah, oh, thanks for clearing that up. We get it now and we believe in you. And here we do see some of the happy denial. I think that's what's happening. Some of the happy denial we talked about a couple weeks ago, that a problem isn't really a problem. Just close our eyes and plug our ears because the very idea of the problem itself is a little bit too hard for me to handle, a little too difficult to bear. It's usually related to some kind of persecution or instability that we don't want to admit about. And, And here the disciples are falling headlong into persecution and chaos and instability in the hours to come. But it almost sounds like their confession is an attempt to reassure themselves. You know, not just to prove themselves to Jesus, but really to reassure themselves, it's not going to be really so bad, you know. He's not going to go anywhere, you know. And Jesus wants to clear it up here by saying, really? Do you now believe, really? You think you figured this out now? You think you cracked the code? Because the hour's coming when you will be scattered. Scattered is the word that he used. The hour is coming when you will run home and stray from me. Do you remember two chapters ago? Peter was told straight out that that he would have this level of discipleship failure. He was going to abandon Jesus. He was going to deny him. That's a very hard thing for Peter to hear and wrestle with. Now all the disciples are essentially told this is going to happen to them, that they're going to experience discipleship failure in the hours to come. The disciples will fail. This is not an instance in which Jesus like successfully put in this plan and place of discipleship, mentored them for three years, and then when the hour came, because of the discipleship stuff, they all, you know, were able to pull themselves out of that chaos because they learned from their master. Like, they will all be scattered. And you know, when Jesus tells them they will be scattered, he's very intentionally employing language that should be familiar to us at Gospel Life from Zechariah chapter 13, which we preached together last year. Mark's account actually quotes the passage verbatim related to Zechariah for this very instance. When he, so this, Zechariah declares, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And Zechariah is pointing forward to this moment in which the good shepherd was sent to be sacrificed for his sheep. The sheep that deserved to be, you know, hap- they were happily trotting, in fact, into the slaughterhouse. But he was sent to be sacrificed for a sheep, to be himself sent to slaughter on their behalf. But, but in this moment, they would stray. They'd be scattered. And here we really see the grace of the gospel on full display. Like even in the midst of the disciples 
Once again, you know, self-reliant type of answers. The grace of the gospel is on full display because while Jesus knew all along the sheep would be scattered, while the Old Testament predicted it directly in this text, Jesus knew, while he knew he would be abandoned by his disciples, not only did that not cause him to abandon them and say, forget this, I'm not suffering for you on your behalf, but it's the very reason he came to suffer. This is great news. It's exactly what he reassures their hearts with here when he says, yet I am not alone. My Father is with me. I am not alone. My Father is with me. He's not shaming them by saying like, you're going to leave me alone? Well, I'm not alone, you know? What's he saying? My work here isn't dependent on you. My work on your behalf my coming to do for you what you could never do for yourselves, my suffering, your scattering is why I'm coming to suffer, right? But it's not dependent on you. I'm not doing this out of a position of neediness where I require something from you because I have everything I need from the Father. And one day, through faith in me, you will be able to love others without requiring something from them because you have everything you need from me. You know, you'll be able to interact with this world in a kind of deep peace because I meet your needs. And this is why Jesus pushes back here because we might be caught off guard a bit, the disciples, the disciples, especially if it's like our first reading through the scriptures and we're like, whoa, hang on, easy, Jesus. They just said they believed in you, you know, and you rebuke them for it. So it's like, can they win? No, but it's gracious. Because he wants to make sure their faith is actually in him and not in their own ability to respond rightly. Do you see the difference? Because if it's the latter, they'll be lost forever. They'll have no hope. And they won't actually be able to do what it is that will bring life, the thing that they desire. This is where um, the early, early 20th century Welsh scholar C.H. Dodd, so helpful in his classic interpretation of the fourth gospel, he writes this. He says, the damping down of an enthusiastic confession of faith might seem surprising. You know, like, we might be, like I said, we might be caught off guard by Jesus' rebuke to the disciples. There's a confession of faith and he damps it down. It might be surprising if we didn't remember that it corresponds to a constant pattern, not only in the fourth gospel, but elsewhere. Like, it would be surprising if it weren't for the reality that the rest of the scriptures do this. There's a pattern at play here. What's the pattern? It's part of the character and genius of the church that its foundation members were discredited men. It owed its existence not to their faith, courage, or virtue, but to what Christ had done with them. And this they could never forget. In, in fact, just as an aside, and it's something we'll talk about because we talk about it every Easter, but here we see evidence of the historical reliability of the text, you know? If you were someone who is manufacturing an account of Jesus in the first century in order to gain power and prestige, how would you write about yourself? How would you write about your response to three years of Jesus pouring into you and investing you as a disciple when finally the moment came where, where it's like the rubber meets the road, are you going to be able to handle it? Would you write about yourself if you were just manufacturing it? 
completely failing, scattering, running away in fear? Would you write about yourself as discredited men? No, right? They wrote about it this way because this is the gospel. This is, this is true. You know, uh, it's the only reason it would show up in, the, in all the accounts the way that it does. And so again, what's in view here in John? It's Jesus doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. It's not because of our faith or courage or virtue. And what's the result? Verse 33. I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Apart from Christ, there's sorrow only. Apart from Christ, there's chaos. He is the bringer of joy and peace. Like, what greater peace is there than the, and joy than the realization that the burden of the promise doesn't fall on you? That it actually falls in its entirety on an almighty God. With that reality firmly in place, even in the midst of chaos and evil and sorrow, we can truly take heart because it's not up to us, it's up to him. And the victory already belongs to him. And this is true in so many ways. In the midst of all of our hardships and difficulties. I think the only way that I could ever handle the burden of preaching is the reality that it's not my word or authority that I'm called to declare each week. You know, it's why I'm not saying that every pastor should do this, but you want to know the reason why I have a manuscript? that I'm working my way through because I, I want to be very careful, you know, like I want to only declare in my explanation what I believe the scriptures to be declaring. I'm not saying I do it perfectly, but this is the idea. It's not my authority because my task is to preach what I've been given. So while there's a weight to that for sure because there's an appropriate weight of making sure that this is where what, what we're preaching at Gospel Life Church is coming from, that's a much better weight than if, if I had to like be, a, be the leader of, of the church of God, of, of like a local church in which we're overseeing souls and, and have some kind of CEO existence where it's like up to me to say clever enough things and good enough things, find some message from within myself that's going to draw people to hear. And li- like, that's a burden I'm unable to carry. I can't bear that weight, but Jesus can, and he does. And see, this is, so even in the midst of the sorrow of that and the pain of that, right? And this is true of so many aspects of life. This is why we keep banging this drum of discipleship being described in the scripture as our daily need of, the, of gospel. That's why I always bring up discipleship failure of the disciples. That's why I'm always so super critical of these studies from the life of Christ that try to create some pathway of discipleship that's really efforts-based and fruits-based, focusing on the attainment of disciplines, our ability to move up some kind of a ladder. I'm so critical and outspoken against that while simultaneously banging the drum of gospel-centeredness that when it's rightly centered, it goes out in all directions and changes everything because that's how we become like him. It's the only way we become like him. It's part of the character and genius of the church that its foundation members were discredited men, you know? It wasn't because after being discipled they were able to replicate what Jesus showed them, pass it on to others. It didn't owe, our, our church doesn't owe its existence to these disciples' faith, courage, virtue, abilities, ingenuity in any way. The church owes its entire existence to what Jesus has done for us and with us. And this we must never forget. Because this is the only way that the kind of joy and peace held out to us actually becomes a reality in the life of the believer. And so because of it, we are in complete reliance on him to give it in every way. And so we pray. Would you pray with me now?
God, help us come to terms with sheer grace. Help us see and understand. Even these last little gasps from within our heart that we so constantly are in need to put to death, to mortify in the life of the believer, thinking that we can somehow make ourselves right, that we can somehow prove or demonstrate that we're worthy on the basis of our own work and effort, that we're not so deeply in need. Lord, help us to put those to death, not that we might see how horrible we are, but Lord, that you instead came to bring us joy in yourself and peace and love, that you came to transform our lives, to look more and more like you because of of all that you hold out to us, but we're in need of you. So Lord, would you do this work within us at Gospel Life Church even this coming week? We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.